real and very personable. But it also seems so much bigger, as though maybe you're doing something in this kind of isolated context, these few players who are talking to one another, now recorded in the scripture to point to something grand, glorious for us. Bless us, Lord, as we walk into this. Pray, God, you'd give us not only some fresh insights into who you are, but maybe who we can be in light of who you are. We pray this in the name of this Jesus. Amen. Wow, what a great passage. I spent the last week in, uh, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, hanging out with a bunch of Lutheran theological intelligentsia. It was very, uh, it was very uh, exhilarating, really. Uh, uh, theological papers being read, and uh, one of them, the, the, one of the themes of the symposium this year was the Gospel of John and interactions about the Gospel of John. Different, and, and one gentleman, uh, uh, Professor Scare, Alan, you remember Professor Scare? Yeah, I don't know if you remember him or not. Um, he, he talked about John, and he pointed out something that I'd never really noticed before. But the Gospel of John, when you walk through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have these, mostly the scenes that we have are Jesus was amongst the multitudes or he was in a crowd doing these great things. But in the Gospel of John, we have all of these little sidebars, these little private, private conversations. That's kind of amazing to me that they ended up in our text because who would have been there to hear the conversation between the bridegroom and the, uh, and the waitstaff? Over the, over, over the wine. And then later in the Gospel of John, as you read through it, you'll notice, wow, that's just like a one-on-one conversation that Jesus has with different people. It's very intimate. It's very close. It seems very small. Like if you were directing a movie, you'd have, it wouldn't be this massive epic. It would be more like an art film. It was all taking place. And so we have in this story a really intimate little picture here This is prior to Jesus having done any public miracles. Last week we talked about the baptism of Jesus, and that was a miraculous manifestation of God, was it not? We had the Holy Spirit coming down. We had a voice from heaven. But that's not something Jesus did. That's something that was done upon and to and for Jesus. Now Jesus is going to uh, roll up his sleeves and go to work, and he does his first miraculous sign. So let's take a look again at the text. I think we have it up here. Uh, We'll just walk through the narrative. I know I just read it, but let's walk through and point out a few things. Um, First of all, it it talks about... um, Oh, no, no, no. You you caught me. This is prolegomena. That's a little little, uh, insight into what we're going to be looking at. This is the first of Jesus' miracles. So tonight we are going to be talking not only about this story, but the fact that Jesus does miracles. Why? Why does Jesus do miracles? When you submit your name on the prayer list and say, would you please, God, do something miraculous for me? Why in the world would God do that? Just because he likes you? That's a pretty good reason. But the Gospel of John at the very end, this is the first sign John records in John chapter 2, but at the very end of the book, the last two verses of the book, we have this text that says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written including John chapter 2. So this tells us exactly why this text was written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why God does miracles. That's why God does miracles in our life. Is it just because I should just be able to name the Scripture and claim the Scripture and expect God to do my bidding? 
No. God does miracles for a reason, that people might believe. Well, what if I believe already? Maybe he doesn't need to do miracles for you. But the reason God has done these miracles in Christ is so that people may believe. So let's check out this miracle now in John uh, chapter 2. And asking ourselves the question, who is Jesus? Who, who do we find Jesus to be in this text? Well, first of all, just as we go through the narrative, it says that on the third day, what do you mean the third day? It's kind of out of the blue. It's the third day. Is that some sort of deeper reference to resurrection? We don't know for sure. John does this a lot, by the way. There's lots of references throughout the text that make us think, hmm, is he trying to say something more here? Maybe, but we don't know for sure. But this happened on the third day. Interesting. Uh, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. I googled this week, where is Cana in Galilee? And it's hotly contested. Basically, Cana is, a, is such a small town that the sands of time have basically covered it up. We don't know for sure where it is. There's a, there's a, a, a Cana kind of close to Nazareth, which might be the place. There's a place up closer to Lebanon. But scholars argue, where's the real Cana? We don't know. Which is interesting to me because Jesus' first miracle is in about as nondescript, non-everlasting place as you can imagine in this little town of Cana. It says that uh, the, the Jesus and Mary and his disciples are all at this, at this gathering. Who would be getting married where this motley crew would be uh, invited? Jesus and Mary, was it someone from Nazareth? Well, we don't know because it's not in Nazareth. Maybe the bride is from Cana and the groom is from Nazareth. We, we don't know. But there's this intimate gathering of Jesus and his closest friends who are all invited. Some have put forward the idea that maybe this is the Apostle John's wedding. After all, it is John's gospel. And John would have firsthand understanding of the conversation between the bridegroom, which would have been him, and the waitstaff. But we don't know for sure. But it was some sort of context. It was a... It, it was a chance where Jesus was spending normal time in a normal event with normal people. He hadn't done miracles yet. Expectations were low. The baptism had taken place, but I think most people didn't quite even know what that meant yet. So Jesus is at this event, probably a lot of family there, friends, a lot of friendly fire. And then Mary comes in, and to look at Mary... Mary is talking to Jesus. So if you look at it in the context of prayer, because what is prayer? We're talking to God. So Mary is talking to Jesus. And what is the content of Mary's prayer to God when she comes up to Jesus? First of all, she just says the situation. Uh, they have no wine. And then Jesus' response, which we'll get to. Um, she just describes the situation to him. Well, actually, let's look at, look at Jesus' response. And these are, these are words that have, uh, can be somewhat difficult to interpret. First of all, he says woman, which is a weird thing to call your mom. Woman was actually a term of uh, respect. Uh, she wasn't saying, hey, lady, nothing like that. It's like, woman kind of goes formal with his mom for a moment. And then he, then he has that phrase, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I just want to know how he said that. If, it, if it's like in an old Christian movie, it's, what does this have to do with me? My hour, you know, something really formal. But Jesus knows 
God has a call on his life. Mary knows. She's seen some angels in the past. She's had miracles follow her all her life long. And sometimes I wonder if, if Mary came up and said, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus, maybe, maybe with a little smile on his face, says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Mary would know what he means, but no one else would because they have some history. And then Mary turns around and just goes, just do what he says. <laughs> just like, like, okay, I'm not going to get into this with you right now, Jesus, but I'm going to ask, I'm, I'm going to assume that you're going to step in and help. It's an important phrase, though, that Jesus says here, my hour has not yet come, or has it? Because he's about to do his first miracle. Maybe he's setting up the reality of this miracle by saying this. My hour has not yet come. Or, if I do step in and help, perhaps my hour has come, right? Mary has some brand of faith that Jesus is going to do something, and it's always good. She has a history with Jesus. So Mary says, do whatever he tells you. That's good advice ongoing for all of us. You might highlight that in your Bible. Just do whatever God tells you. Just do that and things will probably go well for you. Jesus turns to six stone Jewish purification rite, 20 to 30 gallon jugs. How is Jesus going to do this miracle? Which, if you just go through the scriptures, Jesus means by which he does things. I mean, we go all the, back, all the way back to like Noah, I want you to labor to build an ark because it's out of that ark you build that I'm going, to, I'm going to keep you safe. Well, why didn't God just like beam them above the water for a while and then drop them back down? Why, why does God choose the means that he does? Why did God give Moses a, a staff and say, I want you to hit the rock with the staff? Why, did, why, did, why does God do a lot of the things that he does? Another, another story in the book of John has, has Jesus saying, I'll heal you, but tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put mud in your eyes. Go, go wash them, and when you wash them, then you'll be healed. Why don't you just heal me now? Why make me go through some sort of process? There's some glory in the process. God doesn't do things willy-nilly. So why, why is he going to do this? He says, you need wine? Okay, if my time has come. Six, why Six. Some people think that that's the number of man. Seven is the eternal number. Six is the number of this earth. Six is the best man can do. Seven is the best God can do. Take your six stone earthen made of this world stuff. Take those six jugs, which have been used for Jewish Jewish purification rites. We talked about this last week with John the Baptist. John the Baptist lived in a day where you could be washed and cleansed and forgiven of your sin, but Jesus was going to be the one who comes and takes away the sin of the world. It's more than just the forgiveness of the Old Testament. It's the conquering of sin in the new. And so Jesus is now pointing to these same wash right ceremonial jugs and big, 20 to 30 gallons so when you're at a wedding and the wedding's already been going on for a while, I, I mean, I haven't been to many weddings that need that much wine. That's a lot of wine. Purification rite jugs. He uses those for a reason. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
And then his method and application 1.0 is that he says, uh, pour water in those. Again, Jesus seems very minimal here. He's not explaining, okay, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to be making some wine here, so we're, make, sure we, make sure we fill these up, and then what's going to happen is I'm going to turn them into wine. All he's doing is the, the wait staff is going, what? Fill those jars. Those? Those are for ceremonial use. Fill them. With what? Water? Water. Okay, 150 gallons of water is a valuable commodity in Cana. So we're not talking about just go to the faucet. Who's going to draw all that? Who, who went to the well for all that? And you want us to pour all that into those? What in the world are you doing? But the waitstaff complies, which to me is the first miracle, even before the actual turning into the wine. What are you even talking about? Why, why would we be doing that? So pour it into those, and they do. And it says, John makes, makes a point, to the brim, all the way to the top. I mean, they totally go for it. Go, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this. Because, you know, Mary told us to do whatever he said. So we're going to do whatever he said. Then the next thing he says is, now, ladle some up and take it to a head waiter. What are you, nuts? I'm waitstaff here. It's water. We just put water in there. And you're asking me to take a scoop of water to, to my boss? Okay, they do it. And then we have that moment of, I have in my notes here, judge's table. Anybody do a, watch Top Chef, things like that? So they're taking, their, taking this new wine to, to the judge, and he sips it. Red or white, we don't know. Cab or Merlot, we don't know. All we know is it's good. And he says, this wine should have been first wine out, not last wine out. Then the wait staff, it doesn't say here, but they might have said, and we've got like 150 gallons of it. We're rolling. Cana is going to be the new Napa. You just watch. And then it says at the very end of this text, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And what did he do? He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Remember, that's why he does miracles, is so that people would believe. And that's what happened here. His disciples believed in him, probably had begun to believe in him already, but believed in him all the more because of what they had just seen. Because what they had just seen was a peek into the glory of Jesus. So just a few points out of this. Who, who is this Jesus now that we just saw do this? Point number one, and some of you might get mad at me for saying this because it might seem irreverent or disrespectful. I don't think so. Number one is this. Jesus was a foodie. Have you ever noticed that in the text of Scripture? I mean, I was just, just off the top of my head, I thought he's always talking about fruit and seeds and trees and farmers and fishermen, wineskins and harvests. He, he fed 4,000 at one time. He fed 5,000 at another time. He provides wine here. He's always at a dinner, either with uh, tax collectors or he's being invited over to the Pharisee's house. Even after the resurrection, what's one of the first things he said? He comes into a room and goes, give me something to eat because he wanted to prove to them that he was material, material flesh. But still, you know me, give me something to eat. And then later, the resurrection story where Jesus is actually cooking breakfast for his guys. It's like wherever Jesus is, there's a meal happening. It's kind of neat. He even compares, he talks about this supper, the supper of Passover, and the supper uh, that he's instituting with uh, uh, the Lord's Supper, that he's instituting with the disciples, says, I will not eat of this supper until I eat again at 
that kingdom. And what is all of eternity fashioned as? A banquet. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Love that. And Jesus even says, he, he, he puts our whole spiritual life into hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And even saying, if you're to follow me, you must eat and drink me. You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, there's just a, a food thing. And, and, and so, um, it, if I needed wine in my life, I'd go to my friend Andrew, Andrew Viani, who works at uh, Total Wine. Is that where he works? And he just knows a whole lot about wine. So if I got a really need a good, good bottle of wine by about 11 bucks, he could, he could set me up. Jesus would have been the guy. Jesus made great wine. Which, what is wine? It's fermentation. Some, some people, especially in Christian circles, think we should never drink anything alcoholic. But Jesus made really great alcoholic beverage. Some people fight and say, oh, this is just grape juice. I, went to a Bapt- I was part of a Baptist church a long time ago that fought hard to say this had to have just been grape juice because Jesus would never have made great wine. But good wine, if you know anything about good wine, I don't want to go too far on this, but good wine, it, it, it takes aging and just all, all the different ways to prepare it to make wine really good. But Jesus made good wine out of water on the spot. How did he do that? I mean, it's miraculous at a lot of levels. I've always wondered too, you know how he made uh, bread and fish for, for everybody? Did he make, create on the spot dead fish? Or did he create them living and then they died quickly? So that, did he create dead fish? I don't know how Jesus does these things, but he creates fermented beverage on the spot in this moment. So, just interesting. I like, I like to, Jesus seemed to not, not be preoccupied. He wasn't preoccupied. He was preoccupied with the Father. But if any of you are saying, the fact that food exists and it matters a lot to us and we love for it to be good and tasty and we love to celebrate around a table, Jesus is all in with you. So that's encouraging to me. Not the biggest point of the night, but it's fun. Uh, the second point is a little bit bigger and that's this. Jesus shows up at your party. What if you had a party and God showed up? <laughs> Hi, you know me. I'm, uh, I'm Lord Sabaoth of the universe. I'm here to enjoy your, uh, your potluck. But the truth is he does. He's always present with us. This incredible God who can do incredible things. He's always here. But I don't think we stop and realize it. He's here with us even right now. Which, by the way, Lord, if I said anything too frivolous about being a foodie, I, I do apologize. But he is here. And he's here in all of those moments in your life, all of those Kravis moments. He's not just here at church at Shepherd of the Desert on Sundays between, you know, between 8 o'clock and 12. That's like God point. He's not just up here on the altar he is all over. He, he, he's there. He's around us. We think, well, he's my refuge, which means I run to Jesus and I hide in Jesus. He's a refuge that goes with you out into your world. He's a part of everything you do. God with us. That's Emmanuel. And by the Holy Spirit especially, you're his temple. Everywhere you go, God resides. Why does God reside? Oh, he's here to bail me out with miracles. No. 
What does the scripture say? He's here to, he is in you to do what? Manifest his glory so that people will believe. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're just at a wedding reception over here or whether you're just out on a field with a big crowd of people needing a sandwich, God is ready to manifest his glory in your life so that people would believe, including yourself. So it's interesting, we have a prayer request list and a lot of people who are sick, they say, well, I need prayer. What do you need? Well, I wanna, I, I wanna feel better. Okay, that's good, that's really good. But the Bible says that the answer to your prayer will be that God will manifest his glory in you and people will believe. So maybe your prayer is, I'm really sick. God, could you use this suffering to manifest your glory somehow so that people may believe? Or could you heal me so that your glory will be manifested and people will believe? But that's why we pray. It's for the manifestation of the glory of God and that people would believe. And when we do that, God God is with us all the time. Wherever we are, God is with us, always with us, ready to manifest his glory in your situation, ready to cause belief in your situation. And when you live life with that reality, that ongoing walking with God reality, that's a powerful way to live. Instead of just going, no, I'm living my life and God's at the church. Or I'm living my life and God is home in the pages of my Bible. I'll deal with God when the day is done. No, God, God is right there with you. And the more we can walk with God... He's showing up at your party, wherever your party might be. The third point is the big point. And this is where we really get into Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the fulfillment of man's way back to God. And now we're going to get back to the jars. First of all, Mary says something very profound in this text. And usually I just skim over it. And the profound thing is, They have no wine. Okay, using the imagery of this text, what is she saying? Life. They have no life. They have no beauty. They were celebrating something, but now the reason, the the fuel of the celebration, if you will, is gone. Humanity needs wine. It's bad out there. The Bible says we're fallen. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all desperately need God. We had better get some new wine into this system because as far as this system goes, we're out. That's life in the human race. And Mary just points it out. Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus responds to that simple question again. Not even a question, just a statement. What does that have to do with me? I'll tell you what it has to do with me. If you're talking about the wine, the wine of eternal life, the wine of new life in Christ, the wine that's going to be qualitatively better than what? Than the water in those purification jars. So again, you had these purification jars. They, were, they, they did their job. But Jesus, this is point number two, Jesus fills the jars. Those jars would have held water and people would have said, can I get cleansing from my sin? And that water would have been used. Jesus says, fill those up. How did Jesus fill up the water jars of purification through his life? He was the one who fulfilled all of the law. He was the one who lived the fullness of life to the brim that allowed him to be the one who could become that purification for us. So when Jesus looks over there and goes, see those? 
You know what those need? First of all, those need to be filled up completely. Jesus knows that he's the one who fills up completely everything that we need in order to be purified. And the o- he's the only one who can do it because he's the only one who led that perfect life and is able to do it. The next thing is, the, his, his wine is new and his wine is better. This is so much better that they said this should have, this, this is better than the best that we had. But not only is that wine better than the previous wine, but I believe the text is alluding to the fact that this wine, this purification liquid in these jars, this new version of what's in those jars, it is better. It is way better. It's a new day. It's new wine. It's new life. It's the new revelation. And so when Jesus says, my time has not yet come, my time has come when I become the new, better purification for sins. Hearken back to John the Baptist, who said, come to me for forgiveness and cleansing, but that is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is better than the old. And then finally, now is the time. Jesus said, behold, my time has not yet come. It was still the days of repentance and forgiveness like John the Baptist. Uh, This new purification was yet to be exposed to the rest of the world. And Jesus sets up this whole miracle by saying, why would you involve me? My time has not yet come. In other words, the only reason I would do anything right now is because my time has come. And what is it that Jesus' time has come? A new paradigm of how we live and a new paradigm of how we're saved comes in Christ. So the sign, this first sign of Jesus, you look at it and go, oh, it's just it was a nice little miracle of changing water into wine. Oh, it's a lot more than that. This is the beginning. This is, this is the new wine. It's here. And it's in Christ. Love this. So who is Jesus in this text? He's the savior of the world. He alone. He's the one who's bringing the new wine. He's at your party as that savior. He fills your jar, the righteousness that you need to to, uh, stand before the Father. He fills that up in you. And he's now. He has saved the world. But uh, my time has not yet come, or has it? So if you're not a believer in Jesus... Has, has your time come to receive the Christ? Jesus would say, yeah. Yeah. This new wine is better. This is what you need in, in the containers of your life. Be blessed by this new wine. And I got to do this. this one, one, one little extra here. It's not a who is Jesus point, but it's who we are in light of Jesus. It says in the text, Mary prayed, Jesus responded in truth, and then Mary responded by giving up the reins completely and saying, just do whatever he says. Jesus answered to Mary's prayer. I I, I just want you to think about, uh, I want to bring this back to church life here at Shepherd of the Desert, or church life in general. Jesus' answer to Mary is, let's use those old jars. I can just imagine some people in there. You can't use those jars. 
Those jars are ceremonial. We've had those jars for years. That's the way we use those jars. We're not going to let you just throw water into jars at a wedding feast. What are you thinking? By the way, let's use over 100 gallons of water. We, we can't give up that kind of water around here. That is too lavish. It's ridiculous. Jesus, what, the, what, are, you, what are you, nuts? Then Jesus doesn't do any kind of a loud prayer. Father, I pray that you would turn these things into wine. He doesn't, he doesn't wave his hands. He doesn't do any uh, electric shock type of thing. He just, all he says is, go ladle up some water. Water. Give it to your head waiter. And I just hear the guys going, ah, uh, no. I think we, that would be silly. What are we even doing here? God wants to manifest his glory so that people will believe But God rarely, if you look at the Bible, rarely calls us to do things in the way that they were just done yesterday or in in ways often that they might not even make a lot of sense. Shepherd of the desert, we want God to manifest his glory through us to the city so that people might believe. Some people even in in our church have said, you know, we we have no wine our numbers are declining. Um, our enrollment's bad. Our school had to close. Not sure we've got the funding we need. It seems like we need some new wine. Mary steps in and goes, do whatever he tells you. Even if it means taking like some old things and reworking them into something that will hold the new. Even if it means doing something that seems like a little odd, seems a little overboard. But if that's how God is leading, is everybody willing to be like Mary here and say, God, whatever, whatever. Because what we want is for you to manifest your glory so that people will believe. And by the way, we're not hoping at Shepherd of the Desert for yesterday's wine again. We're not hoping for just the water and the purification jars again. We want the new wine of Christ. God, what's the new vision and the new call that we might have? Could you fill us and do something even beyond what we could ask, think, or imagine? And Mary would go, you you guys really want that? Do whatever he asks. But I don't understand it. Go. Do it. It's an interesting day ahead for all of us. We're going to need to be like Mary and the waitstaff. For all this to happen. Because when that happens, you put whatever he says, and then we take our obedience and fill that to the brim. And what do we have? The glory of God. And people will believe. Exciting days ahead. We're going to receive an offering right now. We're going to sing our way through that offering. Uh, sing, sing a song that uh, we're singing all the way through the Epiphany season. It says, I want to be like Jesus. And hopefully there's something in the life of Jesus that you saw tonight in the pages of Scripture that make you want to be like that. Uh, please uh, feel free to, to give. But even as I say this, my offering guy is not here. So, uh, let's see. I'm not sure exactly how we're going to do this. Hmm? People can pass it. There we go. We've got a, we've got a passer and a second pastor. So would you pray with me, please, over this time of offering? Heavenly Father, uh, 
Sometimes when you call us to give an offering to you, we feel a little bit like Mary and we say, we, we just don't have anything. We're out of wine. It doesn't seem like we have a lot of extra. We pray, God, that you would uh, be the Jesus of the pages of the text to us tonight and encourage our hearts by taking even the little we have and you can turn it into something new, something great, and something that manifests your glory so that people would believe. So bless this time of offering, Lord, and bless our continued worship, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have one deep, supreme desire That I may be like Jesus To this I fervently aspire That I may be like Jesus I want my heart is thrown to be so that a watching world may see his likeness shining forth in me i want to be like jesus he spent his life in doing good i want to be like jesus in lowly paths of service trod, I want to be like Jesus. He sympathized with hearts distressed. He spoke the words that cheered and blessed. He welcomed sinners to his breast. I want to be like Jesus. Oh, holy, harmless life he led. I want to be like Jesus. The Father's will, his drink and bread. I want to be like Jesus. And when at last he comes to die, forgive them, Father, hear them cry. For those who taunt and crucify, I want to be like Jesus. Let's stand for the last verse and for prayer. Oh, perfect life of Christ my Lord, I want to be like Jesus, my recompense and my reward. I want to be like Jesus, His Spirit through my hungering soul, His power all my life control. My deepest prayer, my highest goal, that I may be like Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? As we turn to the Father, take a moment and think about someone in your life that the, the wine is gone. Just living 
life godlessly, living life lifelessly. Put those names, in the silence of this time, put those names up before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we were once lifeless. We were once out of wine. And yet you came and saved us and you continue to just pour this newness into our life day in, day out, week in, week out. And as we gather with family and friends like Jesus, Mary, and the disciples did that day, we realize that God is among us. God is there to manifest his glory in the way that we live and to use us, God, to help others believe. So we thank you, God, for, for, for this setup, this reality of who you are and now who we are in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So we thank you for what he did that day. And we pray, God, that in this place and in the church in general around the world and in our city, in our state, We pray, God, that you would. We pray boldly, God, that you would manifest your glory so that people might believe. And, Lord, we, I think we can pray this. Lord, do whatever you ask. Whatever you ask of us, God, we want to walk in that. Because we don't want to miss it. We don't want to turn our back on your will because it seems hard or seems silly. You call us to do simple things and often things that the world says are foolish, but you can be bold and glorious in that. And so, again, we don't want to miss it. We pray for the capacity to be obedient to you. And, Lord, we do pray for those who are sick amongst us and those who are even dying amongst us. And everything in us, God, just wants you to do the miracle of making everybody feel better. But, Lord, we want to, because of the pages of the text tonight, pray over all of these lives and say, Lord, would you manifest your glory in them? We know, God, on the day they die, they will experience the manifest glory of God like nothing else. But right now it seems dark and it hurts. Would you, God, manifest your glory in their situation so that others may believe? And if that means healing, God, please, we would love that. But if it doesn't, we trust you and say, whatever you ask, we give that over to you as well. And God, bless this church in this place. Allow us, God, to walk in the directions you give us and allow us, God, to be that church where you manifest your glory amongst us. We pray boldly together now the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This song can be our closing prayer together. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee.